But let's start with a story. One time there was a vegan who was called by a medical clinic to come see his doctor. Nervous as to why the doctor was calling him, the vegan decided to stop at McDonald's for Happy Meal. He went to the counter and said, give me a cheeseburger, but hold the cheese. I'm a vegan. The clerk punched in the order and then... That doesn't make any sense. What's wrong? If the guy in your story is a vegan, he wouldn't be eating a cheeseburger. Well, yeah, but he said, hold the cheese. So? Vegans don't eat cheese. Uh, they don't eat meat either. No, he's a vegan, not a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, but vegans don't eat anything derived from an animal. No meat, no milk, no cheese. So, no cheeseburger, no ham. Uh, how about a, uh, a ranch chicken wrap? Mm, as long as he ordered the wrap without chicken. He can still have the french fries or the apple slices, or he can order a bagel. A bagel? Well, how's that a happy meal? <laughs> Why bother going to McDonald's? He could have a salad. A salad? Well, he's going to the doctor and he wants to be happy. He doesn't want to be healthy. No, wait, I know. He's a vegan, but sometimes he has cheeseburgers without cheese. So he's not a vegan. Well, he's a vegan most of the time. So he's a wannabe vegan. Huh? You're saying that he is a vegan only when it suits him to be a vegan. Today, in your story, he wants a cheeseburger, mm -hmm. so he has no trouble eating meat. Mm -hmm. But uh, tomorrow, he'll probably be morally against eating meat again. Right. You can't have it both ways. If he's morally against eating products derived from animals, then he should always be against it, not just when it suits yeah, him. Yeah, but, but being vegan is a choice, right? So today, he chooses to eat a hamburger. Oh, wait a second. This is a story. If you're inventing a character who is a vegan, but has no trouble ignoring his beliefs, why are you making the character a vegan? Aha, because I thought of a really cool song that involves cheese. What? A song about cheese? Yeah, it's a, it's a song about a vegan seeing cheese everywhere, haunting him in his house, and because he's trapped in his house, he goes crazy. What? Why, why can't he leave his house? Well, that's the best part. I haven't got to yet. He's going to the doctor because the doctor's going to tell him he has agoraphobia. What? Yeah, agoraphobia, the fear about going outside. But he's at McDonald's now. Yeah, but he doesn't know he's agoraphobic yet. Yeah, but if he had agoraphobia, he would never leave the house in the first place. But the doctor hasn't told him yet. No, 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 no. You don't suddenly learn that you're agoraphobic. You would show the symptoms of agoraphobia first and then be diagnosed. But it's a mental condition. <laughs> But it's not a choice. It's not like deciding to be a vegan. That is a choice. Mm. And yes, you can decide if you want, when you want, if and when you want to be a vegan, but agoraphobia, it's a mental condition. Uh. If your character had agoraphobia, he wouldn't be driving to McDonald's for a happy meal on his way to the medical clinic. He would already be too scared to leave his house. Well, that's kind of a sad story. Who wants to listen to that? Well, at least the story makes sense. If you're going to use words, then at least make sure you use them in the right context. Well, fine. Then I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. Over the last weeks, our Sunday school class has spent a lot of time considering the audience of the New Testament writers. For example, when you compare the Gospel of Matthew with the Gospel of Luke, Matthew has far more references to the Old Testament than Luke. The reason is that the Gospel of Matthew was intended for a Jewish audience. 
A Jewish reader would be familiar with what we call the Old Testament because this was their scripture. So when Matthew interjects an Old Testament verse into the account of Jesus' life, a Jewish listener would recognize it from the scripture and make the connection with Jesus. The book of Luke, in comparison, does not spend time quoting Old Testament texts because this book was intended for a Gentile audience. It was intended for people who knew little or nothing about the Old Testament, people who spoke Greek, people who knew about the Roman law, about Greek philosophy, more about that than the Ten Commandments and the Prophets. So when Luke recounts the parable of the tax collector, or how Pilate declares Jesus' innocence, this has special resonance for the Greek-speaking audience. Last week in Sunday School, we talked about the book of James. Whereas most of the letters in the New Testament act as a sort of sequel to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the book of James is more like a sequel to the book of Matthew. Like Matthew, the intended audience for the writer of James are Jewish Christians. Now, the exact author and timing of the writing are not agreed upon, like we talked about last week, but the content of the letter suits the type of church that would have started in Jerusalem. We hear references to this group of Jewish Christians in the book of Acts, where Peter and Paul disagree over which, if any of the Jewish laws, should remain as part of the newly formed Christian church. Well, sadly, this little tiff between Peter and Paul was never completely resolved 2,000 years ago. It still exists today, not only between different groups of Christians, but even within ourselves. When we are not threatened by something, most of us are more than happy to believe that we're saved by faith alone. Who needs all those little legalistic tomes, right? But the second we feel threatened, or dare I say, the second we want to keep somebody out of our group, then suddenly the smallest insignificant Bible verse that justifies our petty belief becomes the most important thing to our faith. The early church used to have all sorts of scriptures to justify slavery. More recently in our church, we had to wean ourselves off our favorite verses that conveniently prevented women from having the same respect and authority as men in the church. And today the church is trying to decide whether we let go of those few verses that allow some to prevent the LGBTQ community from worshiping as equals. Yet even with this current fad for growing beards and shaving heads that we see all around us, no one seems to remember Leviticus 19 verse 27. Do not cut the sides of your hair or the edges of your beards. Come on, Christians, rejoice in your hair. All joking aside, this problem with the law is something we need to consider, especially as today's scripture begins with a verse that is central to the discussion about the relationship between the Old Testament laws and the New Testament. It begins, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus tells his listeners that he has not come to abolish the laws of the Old Testament, but, he, but to fulfill them. Well, what, what does this mean? Well, it was immediately understood in two different ways. Some began arguing that by fulfilling the law, Jesus made all that law unnecessary. Anyone who accepts the gift of salvation has no need to try to follow this law because Jesus has got rid of it. This is kind of the message of Paul, and it's a message that we hear throughout most of the letters of the New Testament. But by comparison, others believe that even though the law was not necessary for salvation, the law was still required for obedience. If we agree that Jesus was sinless, well, what is sin? Well, sin was all that stuff that was described in the Old Testament. So if we're supposed to imitate Jesus, we need to abide by those same laws that Jesus fulfilled. This was kind of the position of Peter in the early church in Jerusalem. 
Well, since that time, the church has basically sat on the fence. The Catholic Church has essentially argued over the years that Jesus expanded the law, but did not replace it. Protestants like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli believe that Jesus illustrated the true law that the Jewish leaders were just confusing in their current teachings. And Anabaptists sort of took the position that these laws were reformed by Jesus, and so we understand the laws through the teachings of Jesus, but still we, took up the, we look at those laws and follow them through the lens of Jesus. But wait a second, I hear you saying, I hear it very loudly. Did not Jesus question these laws? Well, yes. But Jesus questioned the application or the misapplication of the laws. Jesus didn't really question the spirit of the laws. For instance, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, his arguments against his distractors was not that the Sabbath restrictions were necessarily wrong, but that certain things superseded the law to do no work on Sabbath. Jesus didn't outright reject the law. Okay, so if we need to worry about this law, how much of it do we need to worry about? In case you haven't bothered to count in the Torah, there are 613 laws. Now, of these 613 laws, there are 365 positive laws. Laws that, that, laws that say, do this. And actually, that corresponds nicely with 365 days of the year. So again, we take our anti-clean-cut law from Leviticus. Do, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Well, that's my negative one. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, there are ones. <laughs> I just wanted that beard one again. Sorry. So, yeah, 365 positive ones. But the remaining 248, which now includes my Leviticus ones, which correspond with the bones and organs in the body, have similar types of messages for us. And here's a good one from Deuteronomy 25. If a man gets into a fight with one another and a wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of her opponent by reaching out and seizing his genitals, cut off her hand and show no pity. So again, how much of these laws do we need to consider? How much do we need to worry about in our modern day? Surely we don't have to stop shaving the sides of our head or, heaven forbid, teach our spouses not to grab the genitals of people who I'm arguing with. Well, in today's passage we read, the truth is, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of the law, not even the smallest part of a letter, will be done away with until all is fulfilled. No subtlety there. If you were hoping for follow the Ten Commandments, and just pick ten of your favorite ones, or if you were thinking maybe uh, correlate the laws with the calendar years, make a toilet calendar book to put beside your toilet, and then follow one law per day, you're out of luck. Jesus tells his listeners that every law is equally important until heaven and earth pass away. Every single law. But worse yet, Jesus says that there's no rank to what is more or least important, and no merit badges for getting a few right. Whoever breaks the least significant law and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom. That's why whoever breaks the least significant of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever feels and teaches these commands will be called the great, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus in this one passage is implying that, that even if there is a ranking system as to what is most or least appointment, there's no, whoever breaks the least of these is going to be in trouble. So imagine going to school and a teacher saying, hello children, here's a quick test. If you get one wrong answer, you will fail a test and we will let all the other kids call you the dumbest kid in school. Good luck. That's sort of the implications about breaking the least law. Even the smallest 
law about shaving the head. If we break this law, are we really the least in the kingdom of heaven? Well, you see why so much ink has been spilled over these verses. Why were they ever included? Thus far, the, the Sermon on the Mount has started off really, really inspiring. Jesus started with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Short, inspirational little verses that tip the traditional order of who is most important in society. And then next, last week, Jesus talked about salt and light. You are salt. Don't lose your flavor. You are light. Don't be hidden. That's easy. Think of any advertisement on TV right now. So we're, we're, we're promoting the Sermon on Mount in a TV commercial, just like we would do like a miracle drug or an insurance policy. Let's start with happy pictures of healthy senior citizens laughing and playing tennis and looking really healthy. Well, now today's verses kind of come in like all the little subtexts that start scrolling across the bottom of all the side effects. Yes, the kingdom of heaven can be yours for the price of complete adherence to each and every rule in the Old Testament. And by the way, if you screw up once, we take that all away on you. <laughs> but we're not quite done yet. It gets better, finally. After making it sound virtually impossible to succeed, Jesus summarizes his short lesson by saying, I tell you, unless your sense of justice surpasses that of the religious scholars and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus argued incessantly with Pharisees and religious scholars. In most cases, Jesus told them that they were too legalistic, too focused on the letter of the law. So it's important to note in this passage, Jesus does not say, unless your knowledge of the law surpasses the religious scholars, you will never enter the kingdom. He says, unless your sense of justice surpasses that of the scholars. And this is very important, and I will come back to it. But first, think back to the story that I was trying to tell you before Catherine shut me down. My story was completely improbable because I threw together elements which, by definition, could never coexist in the storyline that I was trying to tell. I wanted to tell some story about a person who was having nightmares about not being able to leave his house because he was haunted by cheese. And I tried to justify his disdain for cheese by making him a vegan and his fear for going outside by making him agoraphobic. But I also wanted this big reveal at a doctor's office and have him stopping for a Happy Meal on the way. Well, the first inconsistency was that if he was really a vegan, he probably wouldn't have chosen to go to McDonald's for a Happy Meal. Now, I could sort of justify this by saying he wasn't a committed vegan, but my real mistake was saying that he was agoraphobic. Well, if he was really agoraphobic, he wouldn't be driving around town in the first place, going to McDonald's or going to a doctor's appointment by himself. I wanted to include elements in my story that were inconsistent with my storyline. So likewise, let's start looking at the story in different contexts. First of all, I'll give you an easy out, and then I'm going to slam it back on reality. First of all, the easy out. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most quoted scripture from Jesus' ministry, but it only exists in its entirety in the book of Matthew. Now, the book of Luke has a similar sermon called the Sermon on the Plain, but it's much shorter than the sermon that's found in Matthew. And most importantly, this section on the fulfillment of the law only exists in the book of Matthew. So again, who is Matthew writing to? Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to Jewish Christians like the early church in Jerusalem who believed they still had to be fully Jewish to be Christian. So yes, it's very true that some part of the early church completely believed that the law was still as important as it was before. But before you all leave the church rejoicing that you're off the hook because it doesn't apply to you, there is bad news. There's another very famous passage by Jesus 
that we probably all know off by heart that exists in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, a scribe comes up to Jesus and asks, which is the most important commandment? And this time Jesus is much more succinct in his answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So is this a case of Jesus changing his mind over the course of his ministry? Did Jesus get so much flack from his listeners about following the law that Jesus decides to make things a little bit easier at the end of his ministry? No, because Jesus doesn't say, do these two things and forget everything else. Jesus says, do these two things because on these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. Now, the difference here is subtle, but it's very significant. And it reflects back to today's passage about having a sense of justice that surpasses the religious scholars. Throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus argued about Jewish law with scholars. But rather than split hairs over the exact meaning of a Hebrew word and delve deeper into some sort of scholarly exegesis, Jesus basically tells them to get their head out of the book. Look up and see how your legalistic code is playing out in real life. And rather than react by verse, allow yourself to react to the person or to the situation that you're in. Again, in my ill-fated story, my most significant error was to try and make my character agoraphobic. Agoraphobics, by definition, are scared of open spaces. It's a mental condition, but you don't choose to be agoraphobic. Either you are or you aren't. If he was truly agoraphobic, he's in his house. But my lesser mistake is the one that's actually a bit more applicable to us today. I wanted a character who was vegan so I could make up a silly cheese song, but I wanted to have a cheeseburger with no cheese rather than a vegan who would want something like a salad. Well, now it's true I could make a vegan who was not really a vegan, or a vegan today and not a vegan tomorrow, but the fact is, if he's not a committed vegan, he's not a vegan. He'd be a guy who sometimes emulates vegans, but he's not a vegan. Well, likewise, that's how it is with our faith. If we truly want to consider ourselves Christians, we need to work hard at a sense of justice that reflects the love of God in our actions to our neighbors. We can't decide one day that we're going to be good people, but the next day that, well, perhaps today is a good day to do something that doesn't really reflect God's love, but helps me in my short term. You can't turn it on and off. So if it's Sabbath and your child falls in the well, regardless of what the law says, you rescue your child because that's what is just, or that's what love commands you to do for your child. We don't have to waste time thumbing through some glossary of proper actions because it's an action that comes naturally from being a just person or being a loving person. But if your child's not falling in a well, it doesn't mean you suddenly turn off your sense of justice or your sense of love. It's still Sabbath. There are still actions that should naturally result from your acceptance of God's love and your willingness to love others as yourself. If you're true to your characters, then your actions reflect the intent of the laws and that of the prophets. So see the eyes, see the law through the lens of justice, or as in our more preferred passage, see the law through the lens of love. If you do, if you really work hard at trying to be a just person or trying to love each other as you love yourselves and as God loves you, then even if you're not consciously following the law, you're following the law.